Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. All right, so we're going to continue in our study through the Gospel of John, and we are going to look at the second half of the high priestly prayer in John 17. And so I, I enjoyed looking at last, last week um, the privileges that we have in Christ. And so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that or you weren't here, you can get to watch it online. I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel or go to the website and uh, you can check out um, the message from last week. But this, this week we're going to look at specifically the prayers that Christ prays for his own. So we looked at the privileges we, we have in Christ, but this week we're going to look at the prayers, some prayers he prays for his own. And we're not looking at everything that he prays for his own. There, there's really three things we're going to look at um, in, in this second half of John 17. And so before we jump in, I want to go before the Lord in prayer, ask that you would pray with me, and then we will see what the Lord will say to us out of his word. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word this morning, and we are grateful that you have given us the revelation of Holy Scripture. And Lord, we know that you've spoken most clearly to us through your word, and it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray, God, that we would not take it for granted that we have the opportunity to read your word, to hear your word, to hear your word preached, and to apply it to our life. What a great privilege that is. And I pray, God, that you would speak to every single heart, that we would uh, not just be hearers, but, uh, but doers of your word. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there was a pastor. And there was a pastor. He is a pastor. His name is Kent Hughes. And Kent Hughes tells the story. Uh, whenever his, he was n- younger in his pastoral ministry, he had younger kids, and, and he was a busy man. Um, just most pastors tend to be busy with a lot of sermon preparation and hospital visits and different responsibilities in their job. And, and so he was busy, and, and um, his kid, his, his son, was, uh, he signed up for the community soccer association and and so getting close to the time for practice, and they're not getting any messages from the coaches about when practices are, and they're kind of curious about when that's going to take place. And, and they get a, get a call one day from the leader of the soccer association in the community and says, uh, Pastor, Pastor Kent, we're, we're curious, um, would, be, would you be interested in coaching your son's soccer team this year? And he said, oh, no, he said, I, 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 just, I don't think I can really carve that out in my schedule. And, and, but, and besides, I don't really know a lot about soccer. And so he, he, said, he said, but, you know, I, I'll give it some thought and, you know, uh, call me back in a couple of days. And so he gets off the phone, he tells his wife, and his kids were in the room, and he said, they said, he said, they asked me to coach, he said, but I just cannot do it, there's no way that I can do it. And so they spent the next two days trying to convince him to coach the soccer team, and, and so sure enough, the, the head of the association calls back, and Pastor Kent answers the phone, and he knows who it is, and he's prepared. His wife is in the room with him, he's prepared to tell her no. She opens her mouth and begins to talk, and he just finds himself saying yes. Okay, I'll coach. So he gets out there and he begins to coach, and he doesn't know much about anything to do with soccer. So he, so, so he spends, a lot, spends lots of time watching videos and reading books on soccer and figuring out how it actually works. And, 
And, and they struggled for the beginning of the season, but eventually they got good and they had some really strong players on their team and eventually they made the playoffs. They made the playoffs. And we're going to pause this story and I'm going to tell you the end of the story at the end of my sermon. But they made the playoffs. And what is interesting about this story about Kent Hughes is that what we're going to see at the end of this story, the end of the message, is that the Lord is always at work. And we're going to find out that the Lord is always at work to get glory through his people. He's always at work to get glory. And he's always at work praying. The Lord is at work. Jesus is at work praying for us that we would bring him glory through our lives. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this about Christ's intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7 says, Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is our great high priest. And this picture in John 17, this reality, this what we see in John 17 of Jesus praying is what he is doing now. He ever lives to make intercession for his own. The prayers that Christ pray for his own. And John 17 gives us a glimpse of what our Lord is praying, not only for the disciples that are listening to this prayer, but he's praying for the ones who would be born again through those disciples which would be us. The gospel has traveled down a, a long road from these first disciples all the way to us, and Christ prays for them, and then he prays for us. What are the prayers that Christ pray for his own? There was several we could have looked at this morning, but there's three specific that I think are primary prayers when we're thinking about the Lord's work in our life, how he wants to use us for his glory. These are three specific prayer points that I think point to that. All three of these prayer points as well, they, 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 they build on each other and they are connected. So the question is, is what does Jesus pray for his disciples? That's what we're going to look at. What does he pray for his disciples? What does he pray for you and I? Well, I think first thing he prays is that he prays for us to be kept from evil schemes. He prays for us to be kept from evil schemes. Look to John 17. We'll see this. John 17, starting in verse 14, and look in 14 and 15. Jesus continues his prayer. I have given them your word. We looked at that last week. We, we have the privilege of having access to divine truth, right? Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You remember last year we talked about how we are kept secure in, in our Father's hands? That he keeps us, he protects us, he keeps us, we are his. When we're his, we're his forever. Well, now Jesus prays here and he says to the Father, he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, I'm, but I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. You know, Jesus affirms here that the world hates the disciples. He hates the disciples because the world, the world hates the disciples because the world hated Jesus. And the world hated Jesus because of his, of his words. They didn't hate Jesus because of his compassion. They didn't hate Jesus because of his, his miracles. They didn't hate Jesus because of all the good things that he did. Who would hate Jesus for that? Except for the Pharisees, right? But the general world population didn't hate Jesus because of how 
nice he was and compassionate he was. He hated him because of his words. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a and a sword. And what, what, what was the sword that he brought? It was the sword of division that was created by his words when he began to declare who he was and why he came. And so Jesus, in his prayer, he's acknowledging that the world hates the disciples, and it's because they are connected to him, and it's because they have his word. And Jesus could have prayed, take them out of the world. God, protect them from this evil world. But he says, no, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to keep them from Satan. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from evil schemes. Now, now when we think about the world, what is Jesus saying? I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. What does it mean, world? Well, the, the word world here, it comes from the Greek word kosmos, which is where we get the word cosmos, right? So there are two realities here in the word world. Is it the people that occupy the physical world? I think that's a part of it, but is it, is it the physical world itself? I think it's both. It's both the physical world. Jesus is praying, I'm not asking you to take them out of the physical world, but also this word world means the evil world system that is motivated and controlled by Satan. So he's saying two things at one time when he's praying to the Father. He's saying, he's saying, listen, listen, the world's hated me, and they're going to hate the disciples because of my word. And, but, but Father, I'm not asking you to remove them from the physical planet. I'm not asking you to remove them from the influence of this evil world system, but I'm asking you to keep them. I'm asking you to keep them from the deception of the evil one. I'm not asking you to remove my disciples from the physical world that is influenced by the systems of the evil one. He's not praying for that. He's praying, but that you would keep them from the evil one. So what is it? What is it that Satan is trying to do in our world? We have the physical world that we all live in, right? But this evil world system motivated by Satan, what is Satan trying to do? It's what he's always sought to do. Uh, look, at, look at Genesis 3, uh, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of, the, any of the beasts of the field. More crafty. Satan is crafty. He's a schemer. He's also a liar. In the book of John, in describing Satan, Jesus describes him as a liar and the father of all lies. He's, he's also a thief. Jesus talks about this in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So he's a schemer. He's a swindler. He's a liar. He's a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This is who Satan is. This is what he's doing in the world today. And he does it in so many different ways in our society. He has designs. You know, it's, it's interesting when we think about the, 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 uh, Satan's schemes. He makes his way into the church. It's an interesting section of Scripture here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul is warning the believers. He's addressing unforgiveness amongst the body of Christ. And listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. He says, previous verses, you need to forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So what, what's Satan trying to do in the world and in the church even? He has designs. He has schemes. He has plans to distract and to destroy, to ruin people's lives. So in essence, this is what Jesus is praying in John 17. He's saying, don't take believers out of the world and straight to heaven. 
Leave them here for my purposes, but keep them from being deceived by the great deceiver and falling for his purposes. This is what Jesus, this is the heart of what Jesus is praying. And I thought about it as I was studying this this week. Wouldn't it have been easier if God's plan was to save people and take them straight to heaven? Wouldn't it have been nice? You get saved and we, we, you know, we, we give a call for people to get saved. They get saved and they start disappearing. <laughs> like, okay, we're gone. I mean, like, you think of all the struggle and the trial and the cancer and the, and the disease and the, the difficulty we see are in our communities and around the world. And you think, Lord, it would be so much easier if, if we would just be saved and go straight to heaven. But that's not the reality. The early disciples also, they would have thought it for sure because they lived in a, a culture that opposed them even to their death. We get to live in a culture, in a society here in America where we're not opposed to the, to our death at this point. We can worship freely as we choose. We can gather in our, the privacy of our, of our own worship service here and, and we're not having anybody trying to stop us. But can you imagine how those disciples felt? Probably they didn't understand what Jesus was praying at this moment, but probably later on they thought, well, Jesus, you remember when you, you, you were praying to not take us out of the world, but it would be nice if you take us out right now. Bring us home. So how does this prayer that Jesus prayed about our relationship to the world impact us? About our relationship to the world and to Satan, how does it impact us? So I think here's some, something, some practical handles for us to think about, about the world that we are in. So historically, the church, in the church, there have been three approaches to how believers have lived and interacted with the world, kind of three basic approaches. The first approach is isolation. That's the first approach, is isolation. That's the first approach that Christians have had throughout history, is to isolate themselves. This is the monastic approach. This is the separatist approach. Stock up on goods and supplies and build bunkers and await the rapture. That's an approach, and you have people that go from one extreme to the other in there, where there, there, there's some people are really far into being isolationist, and, and they're moving off into mountains somewhere and, and off the grid, and, and we're just going to wait for the rapture to happen. And you have different levels of that from different Christians throughout history. That, that's really the, the heart of what you see with, with, with monks. You know, they, 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 they go and they isolate themselves from the world and they, discon- they disconnect from all media and society and they are separating themselves. Uh, the most famous biblical group that had this approach was the Pharisees. They were the most famous group that had that approach. They, they stayed away from those who were not Jewish, who those they believed were unspiritual and not holy and unclean. They separated themselves. They would not walk on the same side of the road as somebody who was not Jewish. And these were the Pharisees. They were the spiritual elite. They isolated themselves from those who were not a part of their religion. This would be what I would call the I'm going to take care of me and mine approach to living in the world. Isolation, isolation. Christians have for, for centuries isolated themselves. Here's, here's another approach, isolation, and then, and then assimilation. This is the conforming group. This is the idea that we must become like the world to reach the world. 
We assimilate. If God didn't want us to assimilate to the world, then he should have just taken us out of the world. That's kind of the, the mindset. Uh, I, I, we're not called to isolate ourselves. We're called to be in the world, but they forget the part of not being of the world. And so they, 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 people, Christians, have believed that we have to become like the world to reach the world, but they forget what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So, so scripture tells us that the assimilation model is not the right model. The isolation model is not the right model. Listen, we will not win the world by being like the world. We will not win the world by not having distinctions that set us apart. We will not win the world by avoiding Christian distinctions. And listen, hear me, that is going to be a continual trend and a temptation for Christians and churches in our country. It's to, 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 to not speak about our Christian distinctions for the sake of reaching the lost. But listen, here's the point. Why follow Jesus if there is no marked difference in the lives of those who are his disciples and those who are not? Isolation. Assimilation. What's the biblical approach? The biblical approach is mission. Right? That's the biblical approach. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you, though, that you would keep them from the evil one because I have a mission for them. This is a missional approach, the biblical approach. We're not conformed to the philosophies of the present world system, but we are in the world on mission as salt and light. This is our relationship to the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. You are the city set on a hill. So the prayer of our Lord is that believers would not be deceived by the evil one who wants to destroy the witness of the life of those who confess Christ. This is why he's praying to be, that we would be kept from the schemes of the evil one. So what about our lives? What is our relationship to the world? Have we been trying to escape this evil world? Have we been trying to escape and not engage? Or maybe have we been incrementally becoming like the world in our thoughts and our actions, right? Don't take them out the world, but keep them from the evil schemes of the evil one. Listen, the Lord's confidence in his prayer was not in the disciples' strength or ability to persevere against temptation, but his, his confidence in his prayer was in the power and love of his father to keep his disciples from the evil one. So, so we, listen, there will be many times in our life where, where we are assimilating in certain ways or we're isolating in certain ways and we're getting off of mission and the Lord's power to keep us from the evil one will be there and he will call us back and he will pull us back and, and we will be recentered at different times in our Christian life. But the Lord is praying that we would be kept from the evil one because he's leaving us here for a purpose, for a mission. So the question now is, is, is how does the father answer the prayer of the son at, on this point of being kept from evil schemes? Well, I think it's the second prayer point that we see here. He's not just praying that we be kept from evil schemes, but he's praying for us to be sanctified in the truth, kept from evil schemes, but secondly, sanctified in the truth. Look, look back to the prayer in John 17. They are not of the world. Verse 16, as just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
This is really neat what the Lord is doing here. Two or three times in this prayer, the Lord uses himself as a comparison. We're going to see two of them here this morning. The first one is here when Jesus is praying about us being sanctified. Look, did you catch it? Verse 18. Verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Do you see that? He's comparing us to him, and he's praying to the Father. He's saying, Father, you have sent me into the world. And why did the Father send Jesus into the world? For a mission, right? And so he says, Father, you sent me into the world just as you sent me. I have sent them. Now sanctify them in truth. So how is it that we are going to be effective in the mission that the, that the Son has sent us into the world for? It's because we're going to be sanctified in truth. This is how he answers that prayer. He, he, says, he says, Father, keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. There's a mission. There's a purpose. There's a meaning behind why I've not just taken them straight to heaven. But, Lord, they're going to have to be sanctified in the truth. They're going to have to be sanctified in the truth. Sanctified simply means to be set apart for holy service to the Lord. To be set apart for holy service to the Lord. Jesus is praying that just as he was set apart for holy service to the Lord, to die on the cross for our sins, that the Father would do the same in the life of his disciples, that we would be sanctified and set apart for holy service to the Lord. So there's two ideas here that we're going to look at under this second thought about sanctification. It, it, it's, the two ideas are this. It's to make holy. To be sanctified means to be, to be set apart as holy. And secondly, to be set apart for service. To be set apart as holy and to be set apart as service. So when we're thinking about being sanctified and being made holy, listen, we are made holy positionally by justification. Don't forget that. We are made holy by justification, but we progressively reflect that positional holiness through the sanctifying work of the Word of God. Did you get that? So important to understand this, that our progressive sanctification, progressively becoming more holy like Christ, is not what makes us saved. I'm going to read that sentence one more time. We are made holy positionally by justification, which comes by faith, but we progressively reflect who we are through the sanctifying work of the Word of God. Do you get that? Look back to Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is where sanctification takes place. How are we made more holy? We, again, listen, we are positionally holy. We're made right with God. But how do we live more holy each and every day? It's by the transformation that comes through the renewing of our thoughts. Through the renewing of our thoughts. How many of you, how, how many of you know how things get renewed? You think about a, 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 um, a sink full of, dirt, of dirty dishes. How do you renew those dishes? You've you, you got to wash them. How many of you have a dishwasher? How many of you are the dishwasher? <laughs> when I grew up, I was the dishwasher. But now we have something powerful called a dishwasher. And I, I like to think of the dishwashing machine like the Word of God. It's going to blast the dirt off of the dishes. And that's what happens. That, that's the sanctifying picture. So whenever you're loading your dishes, <clears throat> now you're going to think about the Word of God. 
You think about, man, I got to get my mind blasted by the word of God today. When's the last time I've been washed by the word? Look, that's what Ephesians 5 says. How's the mind transformed? It must be washed. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Then he might sanctify her. How is he going to sanctify her? How does Christ sanctify his church? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is his first aspect of sanctification. He's saying, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Just as you sent me into the world on mission, I'm sending them on mission. And if they're going to be kept from the evil one, the word of God's going to have to wash their minds. Amen? Have to wash their minds. Our minds must be sanctified, must be washed by the water of the word of God. Our thoughts must be washed so that we can be presented in splendor on that day without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Can you imagine that day? I mean, we can't imagine it now because we have so many spots and wrinkles and blemishes. Can you imagine that day being presented to the Lord without spot or wrinkle because the Lord has done his sanctifying work in our life? Amen. So that's the first idea. The second idea of sanctification is to be set apart for service to the Lord. So this is a, this picture of being set apart for service to the Lord, this picture of sanctification being set apart, it's really an old covenant sacrificial system picture. The priest of the nation of Israel would be sanctified or set apart for service to the Lord in the temple. In, in Leviticus 8, which I believe the seniors have been going through Leviticus. You're, I think you're done or you're about to be done. Uh, look at Leviticus 8. It says, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments. These are the priests. And also his sons and his sons' garment. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So do you see it? Moses had to sanctify or set apart or cleanse the priests before they would do the priestly duties in the temple, lest they would die. Wow. Set apart unto the Lord for service. Sanctified and set apart. This is the picture of being set apart. So here's another picture if Leviticus 8 scares you a little bit. <laughs> it's, like, it's like going furniture shopping. Have you, have you been furniture shopping? Yeah. Uh, we've, we've gone to a few different stores in our 20 years of marriage, and, and it happens every time. You go furniture shopping, and you're there for a long time. And you're looking for the perfect couch. Let's just say we're looking for a couch. Looking for the perfect couch. So, so you're there, and, the, and, and I don't know if you're like me, but I don't want the salesperson to follow me around. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> like, let me go look for the couch, and I'll come find you when I need you, right? So you go, and you look at the couch, and you're walking around. You're sitting on couches, and you get one that reclines, one that has the cup holders, one that has the USB ports and, and all the things. It lights up, it spins, whatever it does, levitates, all these different things that couches do now. And so you're, but, but you can't find that right one. You're sitting on one. You're like, no, this is not it. And you go to the next one, and, and you're, you're an hour, two hours in. You're tired. You're your ability to resist is getting low. <laughs> and then you finally find that couch. You sit on it and you're like, honey, come here. This is it. This is the one. It fits me. I feel like it fits me like a glove. And you're sitting, you're ready. And you go to get the salesperson and you're walking around to get the salesperson. You, as you're coming back, you notice that there's a card taped to the back of the sofa. And it says, sold, reserved for Mrs. Smith. What's the deal with that sofa? 
Miss Smith had a purpose for that sofa. She had something she needed that sofa to do. It was going to serve her well. It was set apart. It was sanctified for her use. That's the picture of our lives, that, 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 that we are set apart. We are sanctified for the master's use. You guys tracking with that? So the, the father, Jesus is praying to the father, saying, don't take them out. Don't take them out. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in truth. Set them apart for service unto you. Set them apart for service. We're called to live in accordance with God's reserve sticker that he's placed on us. In reality, this is what Jesus is praying. He's praying this, Father, don't take them out of the world. I have purposes for them, but please keep them from the schemes of that ancient serpent. Keep them from the schemes that will hinder them in the work that you've sanctified them for. Sanctify them in truth. And I'm here to tell you the enemy is a swindling schemer. He's like a He's like a snake oil salesman. I've never seen a snake oil salesman. That's just what you say, right? Snake oil salesman. Who's, who's ever bought snake oil? I didn't know you could sell snake oil. But he's like, a, he's like a snake oil salesman. He can convince you to buy snake oil. I guess that's the point, right? He's, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. And his job is to get you as a Christian to believe that you are of no good use. And he throws stuff in front of you. Do you know how dogs get trained? Dogs get trained through temptation. Did you know that? Get trained through temptation. So the person trying to train the dog takes nice red meat, throws it in the yard in front of the dog, and the dog immediately is going to take off to go get that meat. And so the dog comes back to train with temptation. The owner throws that meat out again, throws some more meat out, and whenever... The dog goes to run, the trainer restrains the dog and has the dog look up at his master, look up at the master. And he goes over that through temptation, he's training them to look at the master, look at the master. And so at some point in the future, whenever the master says something, whenever the master wants that dog to do something, then that, that, that dog's going to respond because it's been trained to Lean on the master, look at the master. And the same is true in our life. The enemy will throw temptation after temptation in front of us. And if we are not trained to listen to the master, we're going to keep chasing after that temptation. So we have to learn to set our eyes on the master. And he, the enemy Satan wants us to follow after his temptations and to believe that we are good for nothing, that we cannot be used for anything. But if we will turn our eyes and look away to Christ and look to the master, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. Our Lord's praying for us to be kept from his evil schemes, sanctified in the truth, kept and sanctified. But he's also praying this. He's praying for us to be unified together in love. Unified together in love. Look back at the text. I do not ask for these only. So he's saying here, I'm not praying just for these 11, 12 disciples right here. I'm not just asking for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And what is he praying for us? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Wow. You see that? 
Three times in these verses, the Lord prays that his disciples would all be one. Listen, and here's a second comparison. He's comparing himself and us again. Listen to what he says. He says in his prayer, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I mean, what a stunning picture. What a prayer to pray. Jesus is praying that our Christian unity would reflect the Trinitarian unity that is present within the Godhead. That's why he says that they would be perfectly one as we are one. Wow, what a picture of unity. It's amazing. The unity within the God is is, is a perfect and glorious unity. And Jesus even said that he only spoke what he heard his father say. They were perfectly unified. And this section right here in John 17 is probably thought of of most when we think about Christian unity. This is a section that people will go back to. You see, Christians need to be unified. And look, Jesus prayed for it in John 17 that we would be unified, that we may be one. And we see it all throughout Scripture, not just in John 17. Look at Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the the oil that goes down Aaron's beard when he's sanctified and set apart and anointed for service. It's that there's an anointing that comes. There's a blessing that comes from God when brothers dwell in unity. Unity is important in Scripture throughout the Bible, but you see at the birth of the church, do you remember in the book of Acts, whenever... The Gentiles got included into salvation, right? The salvation wasn't just for the Jews. The gospel wasn't just for, for the Jewish nation, but the first Christians that were born again were, were Jews. And so God had to help Peter to go to Cornelius' house to see that Gentiles should be included into the kingdom. And what began to happen? Disunity began to go into the body of Christ, began to go into the first church. How? Through, through, through food, through, through circumcision, and so the Jewish Christians said to the, to the Gentile male Christians, hey, hey, we're circumcised. You've got to have the sign of the covenant as well. So all you males need, need to be circumcised. Oh, and you can't eat pork. You can't eat bacon because we can't eat that. And so they had to have the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts to deal with those issues, disunity, division. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. It says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Did you you see that? When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What what an amazing statement Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. It's not for the better that you come together. It's for the worse because there's divisions. Then look at Philippians 4, verse 2 through 3. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women, right? We don't know what was the division between Iodia and Syntyche. But the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Philippi to address it. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that if you're two ladies in the church and you're sitting in the the Sunday morning scripture reading and you get a letter from the Apostle Paul and you get called out in church for disunity? Wow. Help these women out. So listen, it is important for believers to get along to fight against division and not with each other, to fight against division and not fight with each other. You guys following that? It is important for believers to not slander or gossip about one another. Thomas Brooks rightly says this, discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another 
that is, this is unnatural and monstrous. Wow. So, while all that is true, I don't think this is the primary idea that Jesus is praying about here. I don't think this is the primary idea that we wouldn't fight, that we wouldn't gossip, that we wouldn't backbite. There are lots of other portions of Scripture that we can deal with that, like in 1 Corinthians 11, like in Philippians 4. But I don't think this is the primary thing that Jesus is praying about here. I think it's a part of it. But the primary thing is connected with, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking you to remove them from this planet. But I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. I'm asking you to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Why? Because they are on mission. And I'm asking you to unify them together. Why? Not so that they wouldn't fight. That's great and that's good. We don't want to fight. But I'm asking you that they would would be unified because I've given them a mission. A mission is the thread of all of this prayer. It's the thread of the entire prayer. I believe the prayer that Jesus is praying here is primarily focused on the mission he was about to commission these disciples with. That's the context. He's about to die, and they're all going to scatter. He's praying that they would not give up the faith. He knows he's going to rise from the dead, and he knows he's going to commission them. And what does he tell them? Matthew 28, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. So I think this prayer in John 17 is connected to Matthew 28. How are they going to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations if the Lord would just take them off the planet? How are they going to go into the world and make disciples of all nations if they're deceived by the evil one? How are they going to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations if they're not sanctified in truth and set apart for holy service? How are they going to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations if they're not unified around that singular purpose? You get it? This prayer in John 17 was about their future, about the future mission that he was calling them to, future mission he was calling them to. Make them one, unify them, set them apart for this singular purpose. And what is it that will be the unifying factor for these disciples? What's going to be that unifying factor, that that thing that they unify around? It's the gospel, the cross, the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sin, the good news of the resurrection, unity around a central message, unity around a central purpose, unity around central truths, gospel truths, Christ-exalting truths, the message of Christ crucified and resurrected. That is the central message, centrality of Christ. Central, central point, central focus point. Have you, ever, have you ever heard an out-of-tune piano played? These pianos are digital, so they don't go out-of-tune. But we have a piano in the back that we can't fit out the door <laughs> to get over here on the stage, but it has to be tuned, right? And how do you tune an out-of-tune piano? You use a tuning fork, a tuning fork. So the tuning fork is the central point of reference to tune a piano. So you could take one piano, two pianos, or a hundred pianos, and you will tune them to one central location where they all look in one direction towards the tuning fork, and the vibrations of the tuning fork line up with the vibrations of the piano, and, and it gets tuned. They're all tuned to one central tuning fork, tuning fork. The keys are no longer, out of tune piano, the keys are no longer synchronized. And the keys on the piano represent the different notes, right? 
But with proper tuning, they're, they're nothing more than random notes cobbled together. A tuning fork's job is to establish a single note that everyone can tune to. A.W. Tozer explains this beautifully. Listen to this. It's going to be on the screen. Read it with me as I read. This is so instructive. Has it ever, incurred, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, and in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Did you catch that? I'm going to read that one more time. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship? You follow that? What makes us unified is not that we're going to all agree on the same thing. That is impossible. Oh, it's impossible. 42 years of living as a human being on planet Earth has has shown me that, but nothing more has shown me that than pastoral ministry. (laughs) We cannot all agree. We can barely agree on where we're going to go eat lunch. Can you imagine if we all decided, hey, let's all go out to eat together (laughs) after service? (laughs) First of all, we don't have enough room anywhere, but like, just take a group of 10 people. We can't even agree of what we want to eat, much less on the different nuances of doctrine or how we're to live out our mission as a church. That's not true Christian unity. Like, we, can, we, we will always have differences of opinions and different views. This is what makes the body of Christ beautiful, is that, that we, we can have differences of views on secondary doctrines. We can be different. It's okay. But that tuning fork of the gospel, looking away to Christ, so often we're so looking at each other trying to get unified, and we don't ever get unified because we keep running into our differences. Instead, let's look away to Christ. Let's see his beauty and his glory and his gospel. Let's come together for that purpose. Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in truth. Unify them together in love. Have them look away to me for their unity. So look away to Christ. Behold his glory. Be sanctified through the word. Be set apart for God's kingdom purposes and link your heart and mind with fellow believers for the common gospel mission we're called to. Look away to Christ. So Pastor Kent Hughes, you remember the story? Where did I I leave him off? Playoffs. Playoffs. Yeah, playoffs. You guys didn't forget. We're in the playoffs in football, right? This is the the European football, uh, soccer. And... um, so they're in the playoffs, and they go to the playoffs, and he does a devotion with his team. Does a devotion with his team that morning, and he invites them all to church. All the parents are there. The kids are there. Everybody's there. Does a devotion about David and Goliath, <laughs> and they lose <laughs> one to nothing. And, you know, it was a great season. He says goodbye to all those players. And he's a pastor, so Sunday morning's coming. He 
gets up the next morning, ready to go to church. He's prepared, he's ready, his back is to the crowd because he's on the front row and he walks up the stairs and he turns around and steps up to the pulpit and he looks out and in a moment he sees a section of orange jerseys. The whole team came. The whole team came. All the parents, all the players. And within that group of orange jerseys were Jews, Muslims, atheists, non-practicing, non-identifying, right? Sitting in the church service, hearing the message about how Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Sitting in that service. And in that moment, in that moment, he thought of John 17. And he realized, he realized that, hey, yeah, it was a hassle. It was difficult. My schedule was rough during those two, three months. But he remembered what Jesus prayed. Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I ask you to keep them in the world so they can coach soccer. I ask you to keep them in the world so that they can lead a beta trip. I ask you to keep them in the world so that they can work on their job at Halliburton. They can work on their job at at Walmart, they can work on their job at Rouse's. I ask you to keep them in the world so they can be in the world, so they can be salt and light, so they can live on mission, so, that, so, that, so they can be sanctified in truth and, and sanctified and set apart for holy service unto the Lord. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. I ask you to leave them in the world. We're not here to isolate ourselves. We're not here to assimilate to the culture. But we're here to be on mission, to reach the world for Jesus Christ. It's why we're here is what we're called to. So wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, stay tuned to Christ, look away to Christ, and let's do that together for the purpose of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.